Good morning. It's great to see you. Could you turn to someone around you and say good morning to them? And while you're doing that, grab your Bibles today, John chapter 18 and verse 28. And then at the end of our teaching this morning, we will share in the Lord's table together. We have been working our way through the Apostles' Creed, not preaching the Creed because we're not here to do that. But yet we realize that creeds do not have any authority within themselves, but they point us to greater authority, and that is the Word of God. So the creed is a reflection of Scripture. So today we find ourselves at the topic or the moment in the creed that suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Now, what I understand as we go through this this morning in the book of John chapter 18, we're going to read a lot of Scripture, so hang on because it's a great narrative which provides a great platform for the Lord's Supper in just a moment that the death of Jesus for the sins of mankind uh, stands as one of the most beautiful events, I think, and that's a strange way to even, I think, characterize it, and also a very perplexing event in history. Uh, and you say, well, why do you use the word perplexing, Mark? And it's, it's, it's odd because I know, because it's growing up in church and we hear about the death and the crucifixion of Christ, that we begin to think, because I think sometimes we allow ourselves to become almost numb to that that event and that fact, and that all of a sudden we say, well, what does this have to do with me 2,000 years later in my life, and how does this really impact my life on a daily basis? And we almost begin to look at it as if it's some historical event. Yes, it is, but yet more than that. You know, we look at it as like kind of like George Washington and the cherry tree thing, and I cannot lie kind of deal, that the, the historicity of it is very important to us, yet, yet it's more than that. Perplexing because it is the most beautiful thing that's ever taken place in human history. It is because what we see in the death of Christ is God reconciling us back to God. And that's a powerful thought, that God reconciling us back to God. Creating a people where there was no people at all locally and yet universally. universally. And so every time when we begin to look at this creed and read this creed together, what we realize is this, and when we read statements like, "...suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried." What we realize, a couple of things, is this. That we're tying ourselves to believers that have read this creed or recite this creed together over a thousand years. We're tying ourselves to that powerful moments in history where people have stood in gatherings somewhat like we are sitting today and they've recited this together. Secondly, I think is what we do is reject the popular narratives of the day as they did years ago, hundreds and thousands of years ago as they read this creed together. And we say we pledge our allegiance to the God of the Bible and this is where we stand. And so every week we've said, hey, when we recite this creed together, that we reject the isms of our day. And so we've added a lot. And so here is one this morning. We reject the, the ism of intellectualism. And you say, Mark, what does that mean? That we neglect the intellect? And that's not it at all, because you've been trying to you know, teach your kids, hey, think, use your brain. I don't know if you've ever said that to your kid. You know, use your brain. No, it's this not, as a, not necessarily about your intellect, but it's about this thought that if I can just think the right thoughts and come up with the right ideas that man can fix itself. And we know that that is not possible at all. And so we reject that idea. We also reject the idea of legalism. And that is that there's this set rule or things that we can do or list of behaviors that we must accomplish in order to be right with God, that somehow we can make leverage with God and we can tilt the scales in our favor with the Lord. If we just do these things and look this way and go through these motions, sometimes even in church, that that is legalism. And we reject that when we recite the creed together. So as we've done over the last number of weeks, as we started this about four weeks ago, today this is the fifth week, 
that we stand together and we recite the creed together. So would you stand for a moment, please? It's on the screen, on the banner behind me. It's on your bulletin. Plenty of ways for you to read along with me. But let's recite it together. So powerful that we're doing this as believers have done for well over a thousand years. And so we recite it together. Would you read along with me? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Thank you. I always say to you this, that one, this is not an incantation because we don't believe in incantations. This is not going to make you lucky. This is not going to save you in any way. That's not what this is about. And, and also the fact that when we say the Holy Catholic Church, that it means simply the universal church. That is what the word means, Catholic, the universal church that we believe in the body of Christ, which includes that believers in the Roman Catholic Church also. So it includes all of us. So it's important that we state that this morning as it was simply recited in the original creed. And what I realize this statement is this, that suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried, that that phrase cannot be argued historically. It cannot that it can be proven outside of Scripture that historically those events happened. We know that, that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate, physically died. He did not swoon. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. And, And it can be substantiated, historically accurate. But today, this is not a teaching about proving the facts. That's not what this is, because the facts stand for themselves. But it's about the things under the fact. It's about the things underlying in this story about the crucifixion of Christ that we want to look at today. So we go to the book of John, chapter 18 and verse 28. Can we let's just follow along with me this morning in this narrative? You, you've heard it so many times, but let it simply go from your brain to your heart today. So John 18, starting with verse 28, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. You know, when I read this every time I have to stop this from him, boy, I feel this some sort of kind of anger inside of me rise up because such, a, such hypocrisy that we find here. Verse 29, So Pilate went outside of them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own laws. And the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, as if he was going to get a fair trial. You know, he already has the punishment of death. Verse 32, This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or do others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew, your own nation, and the chief priests have delivered you over to me? What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants 
would have been fighting. Now, you re- it goes back because this refers back to Peter in the garden. And, you know, when they come to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls the sword. He cuts off the ear of the temple guard. Jesus miraculously puts it back on in that moment. And so Jesus puts a stop to this notion that his followers are warriors and they're going to fight this physical fight. He goes on to say that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king? For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is the truth? He said to Jesus. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. If you read the Synoptic Gospels, what we realize later on is that he is not just a robber, but Barabbas is also a murderer. Go to chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in purple robe. They came, they came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to him, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to him, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. And when Pilate heard these statements, he was even more afraid. And he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, "Um, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him. I love how Jesus answers these questions. You have no authority over me at, any, at all times. It has been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release him, that you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out. He sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in the Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to him, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. A powerful narrative, isn't it? Absolutely. And what we see here in this narrative we just read is a microcosm of that of the crucifixion of Christ and the abuse of Christ at the hand of Pilate. Because we know that in reading the Synoptic Gospels, what we find out is they not only did the things that we had just read, but they plucked the beard from his face. They spit on him. They mocked him. They shamed him by stripping him from his clothing. And all of this was done as he was completely naked to take away his dignity. They sent him to Herod. Herod wants to use him as some kind of circus side show. So Herod says, hey, Jesus, do some miracles for me to amuse me. Jesus refuses to do those things. So Herod beats him and then sends him back to Pilate again. 
This is not even the crucifixion yet. Because Jesus is beaten so severely that he is so weak that he cannot carry his own cross. So Simon of Cyrene carries Jesus' cross to Golgotha. Their nails are driven in both hands and his feet together. So that when you hang on the cross, you have to push up from your feet, which simply tears the skin in your feet from the nails being driven through both of your feet in order for him to find air. Because the way you die on the cross is you drown in your own blood. He suffered. I want you to understand that this morning, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. You say, Mark, I know this story. Man, I've been in church, you know, I go to church on Easter, Good Friday, so I hear this every year, I know it. But it's more than a story, and that's the point, and that's the place for the creed in our life this morning. That when we say these things together like we do in the creed, that it's more than a story. A couple of thoughts for you today before the Lord's table. It's this. Christ's death on the cross reconciles us back to what the heart needs most. Because we know that we're yearning for something. There is this feeling in all of our lives that there has to be something more to life. That is why we work hard and that is why we do the things that we do and and we try to move on. That, That There is something more and many times that's revealed in felt needs. My marriage is not working out right now maybe or there's addictions or struggles or I'm dealing with unforgiveness or anger in my life. They're symptoms of a greater disorder in all of our lives is what they are. Those are significant, yet, but they're symptoms of this ultimate struggle in all of our lives. And that is that the ultimate struggle is you and I were created to commune with God. We were to be with God and to be with one another. And then all of a sudden, in Genesis chapter 3, sin shows up. It fractures everything. It breaks the cosmos. It, it simply messes everything up. It God set as perfection. And so it leaves us hungry and thirsty. It really does. And there's no real way of satisfaction for our lives. If you go to the book of Isaiah, we find these powerful words where he says that how long will you eat bread that does not satisfy or how long you're going to drink water that does not quench the thirst of your very life. It's the idea that there's something going on in our life, a longing that cannot be thirst, cannot be a thirst that cannot be met by anything in this life. And it's the truth. It's where we are because of the broken world that we live in. It's restlessness and longing and desire. We're constantly punting the ball down the field, thinking that, oh, around the next corner, that this will be better, that something will fill this longing within my life and satisfy me. And so we have these addictions and issues and struggles in our life and they spring up, they're symptomatic, but they spring up from a greater issue within our life and that is that we were created to have communion with God. And so what does Christ's death do? It reconciles us back, it reconciles us back to God. It's so powerful that what it does this, it puts us back in Eden. And that's a crazy thought, isn't it? Yes, It puts us back in Eden because at that moment at creation, Eden was created where Adam and Eve communicated with God, richly with God and one another. That's what the reconciliation of the the cross does for you and I. It simply alleviates shame and death and guilt. That's exactly what the death of uh, of Christ on the cross does for us in our lives. It reconciles us back to what the heart needs the most. We all feel like something is missing at times. We do. It's a broken world that we find ourselves in. And when Jesus suffers under Pontius Pilate, when he is crucified, when he is buried, all of those things 
are to bring us back to that state where God originally planned for us to live. And it is simply done through the reconciling of Jesus going to the cross for you and I. It reconciles our heart back to what it needs the most. The second thing is this, and the second thought is this, that Christ's death on the cross reconciles the enemies of God back to God. That it's clear that none of us are righteous, no, not one. Now, can I say a few things to you this morning before we go to the Lord's table that might hurt your feelings? You say, Mark, please, you can't do that, you know. This is like the bookend Sundays of the fourth, week of the fourth. This is about summer, and we've got beach on our mind and all of that, and some of you got sand in your shoes this morning from going to the beach and all. So you shouldn't talk about these things. This is No, I want you to hear this today that not one of us in this room is good mark really that is absolutely offensive to me for you to say that because you don't even know me no the longer i live the more i realize how true that is that none of us are good and if you think you're good it's because you have compared yourself to some moron somewhere really is isn't that right yes and if you're sitting next to them don't look at them right now keep your eyes upon me right now okay that's safe all right This is church, but crazy stuff can happen. So, yeah, you've compared yourself to somebody that you think is a moron and next to them and compared to them that you'll feel pretty good about yourself. That's why we think we're good, because we are using someone else as the measuring stick for our own life to judge goodness within our own selves. That is exactly right. But what Scripture teaches is this, that none of us are good within ourselves. No. We've taught this over the years here at Hope Fellowship. That the purpose of the Ten Commandments is not a list of rules for you to just follow and check off the box. Because really, if you look at the Ten Commandments, it's impossible for all of us to perfectly follow those day in and day out in our life. It really is. The purpose of the commandments is always to push us and to drive us toward real goodness, to the one that can bring goodness and righteousness within our life, and that is Jesus. Because within ourselves, we are not good. No. Now you have to love me, okay? Understand that, all right? I may be in the lobby when you leave. You have to speak to me. You can't blow out past me, you know, kind of like, well, he said I'm not good. And so that's okay. You know, wait till you see how I leave the parking lot this morning and I'll really show you how not good I am. And so let me tell you, don't take my word for it. Take the Bible's word for it. It's Isaiah 53 and 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. I knew you were going to pull that one out, Mark. I knew it was coming, but it is absolutely true. And what Christ's death on the cross does is he reconciles the enemies of God back to God. And if you begin to read the Bible with a correct lens, what you realize is this, that the major accusation against Jesus through his ministry on the earth was that he was always hanging out with that of tax collectors, and he was always hanging out with prostitutes and drunkards, and he was a friend of sinners. And that was the greatest accusation that they had against him. Yes, Lord, let that be what we're accused of sometime. Yes, amen? Let that be what we're accused of. Because when you read the Bible, look at what, look what happens. You got Matthew. Matthew is a tax collector. He is a, and he's called to be a disciple of Christ. And I want you to feel the weight of what God does, how he reconciles God's in, enemies of God back to God. That Matthew is a tax collector. And, and I think sometimes we don't really 
frame that properly because we grow up in church singing songs like Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. You remember this song? He climbed up in the sycamore tree to see what he could see. Now it's locked in your brain, isn't it? Thank you, Mark, for doing that. Yes. No, it is. And if we really read this with the correct lens, what we find is those first century tax collectors, oh, they were hated by the Jews. You know why? If your tax was $20, they would collect $50 from you. And some of you think, well, that's like the state that we live in. No, it's not that bad. Okay, understand that, right? It's not. They would. Did you know tax collectors actually purchased the right to be tax collectors? They were not demanded by the Roman government to be tax collectors. They actually paid themselves in order to be tax collectors. And what they did, they purchased the right from Rome to collect money from their own people to support an occupying force in their own nation who had robbed and who had raped and who had murdered hundreds of thousands of their fellow countrymen. There is no equivalent to a tax collector in the first century in the United States that I can think of today. It's not. No. If, you know, sometimes in moments when we're kind of unspiritual, I don't know if you ever have those moments, but, but if you, in those moments where they're unspiritual and man, someone has really done us wrong or something, we might use the term that they're nothing but a piece of trash. Now, I don't know if you've ever called anybody that. I will not have you raise your hands, okay? So don't worry about a survey for a moment, okay? But if you were to call somebody a piece of trash, can I tell you that Matthew and Zacchaeus were pieces of trash, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Be careful, you know. That's the first one in the Synoptic Gospels. That's that's the first one we find in the Bible. But if you look at it this way, they sold out their neighbors and family members for dollars. And God has the gall to call those brothers of ours to be disciples, to go eat in their homes, that he was a friend of sinners, John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Ah, that he reconciles the enemies of God back to God. It's such a powerful thought. Well, how are we enemies to God? I think a couple of ways, too, that we're, um, we're irreligious and that means that we care nothing about spirituality or nothing about God, and we don't want to have anything to do with that, or we are extremely religious, and that is that we have all of these things around us. We have our Bible study, our connection group, we have worship, and, and we have all of those kinds of things around us, and so we don't really need God in our life. And both, both areas, I think, use the very same language simply, in our different language to say the very same thing to God. And here's what Jesus does in the first century as he is reconciling God's enemies back to God, is that he gets rid of the idea of people being classified as outcasts. He, he trashes that whole idea of people being outcasts. He finds a woman outside of Samaria. She's living with a man who is not her husband. She's had five husbands prior to that. He knows that. You know what? She's living with this man. It's, it's like sex for rent. It really exactly what it was. It, yes, she needed a place to stay because of, of her condition in the past. So she simply lives with this man and has sex with him so she can have a roof over her head. And, and what does Jesus do? He invites her into the covenant community. 
He turns the spiritual economy of that day absolutely upside down and rescues people. Listen, he rescues people that would not pass our background checks to hire as staff on this church. Did you know that? I thought about that this morning. That's crazy, isn't it? And some of you are thinking, Mark, if you did a background check on me, you probably couldn't hire me either, you know? And, and so I'm telling you, that happens to God. That's all of us. That, that is exactly right. That what Jesus does, he turns the spiritual climate upside down. He erases the notion of that of people being outcasts. And because of that, you and I sit here today. And when we read this creed and we recite this creed together, that God says, and God wants us to have this clear and correct understanding of the very nature of who God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is that he erases the thought of outcast. He reconciles God's enemies back to God, and because of that, you and I are here today. Ah. So you said good morning to the person next to you. You know this has to come, right? I have to break the ice with you. You have to talk to one another, absolutely. But Mark, I'm sitting next to the moron that I've compared myself to, and you don't understand. Well, good. This is an opportunity for you to say this to them. Say to them, God has reconciled you back to him as his enemy. Say that to them, that God has reconciled you back to him as his enemy. I don't want to call that person God's enemy, but yet that's what we are. Until being reconciled back to him, we were an enemy of God. And what that says to me so powerfully is none of us have gone too far. None of us has sinned so greatly that we cannot be reconciled to God. The last part is this, that Christ's death on the cross purchases a people, purchases a people, creates the church. Can I read a scripture from the book of Acts chapter 20 and verse 28? Pay careful attention to yourselves. As, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood, the church, the body of Christ, the overarching body of Christ that we talk about here in the creed this morning, obtained, purchased, bought by the blood of Christ, that we're here because of the blood of Jesus. How does that happen? First Peter 2 and 10, once you were not a people, the scripture says, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I want to tell you, look around at this room, man. We're an eclectic group of people. We really are. And, I, and so I made a list. Here's my list. That in this room, there are GEDs, there are high school grads, there are BAs, there are BS. And you say, well, Mark, there's a lot of BS, but that's beside the point, okay? And I just had to say that because you thought that already. So why not just say it and get it out, right? And, and, and there's, a, there's master's and doctorate's degree. In this room, there are thousandaires and there's millionaires. Yeah, there, there really is, yes. And, and in this room, there are those of you that came to Christ before you were 10. Some of you came to Christ after you were 20 or after 30 or after 40 or after 50. Some of you even after 60 years old that you came to Christ. Some of you grew up with means in your home and you grew up very comfortably. Some of you, your parents struggled. Some of you grew up with your mom or dad who taught you about Christ. They drug you to church and and because of that, you're greatly thankful. Some of you, that was not the case in your life. 
Some of you have struggled with addictions. Some of you have not. Some of you are struggling today. Some of you have never said a cuss word in your entire life. You made up one in your mind one time. You're not sure if that counts, but you didn't say it. But anyway, you felt so guilty. You asked God to forgive you because you were afraid of Jesus returning. Okay, so, so you know you did that. In this room, we have Southerners and we have Yankees. And in this room, it, it's a crazy room. What do we have in common? The blood of Christ has brought us together. Only the blood of Christ could do this. Only the blood of Christ could create this environment where we would come together and we would serve one another and serve others. We would lay our lives down for each other. Jesus the Son reconciles us back to God the Father and creates this community and this community universally that we're part of the body of Christ. That is a mind-boggling thought. That only through that, of the death of Christ on the cross, that he creates this community. So what does this mean for us as we tie this all together? What does this mean, Mark? Symmetry, we've, always, we've gone through these uh, together. Symmetry and clarity and community and counsel. Is those are the things that the, the creed speaks to us over. So what about symmetry? How does that speak to our heart? That some of you, I believe, need to consider and meditate and think about the Word of God as it relates to this sin in your life. You say, well, we're going to talk about sin for a moment? Yeah, we talk about sin almost every week because we're very good at that. Most of us are professionals in those areas of sin. And so, yeah, we're good. And so I think that some of you have a real hard time believing that your sins can be forgiven. You have a real difficult time believing that God is able to forgive you of the things that you've done. So today I pray that you are encouraged, that you meditate, that on the fact that your sins are forgiven this morning. And I think for some of you, oh, you think that, you know, your sin is not that big of a deal and you have not taken it very seriously. Can I tell you for a moment, take your sin seriously. What do you mean, Mark? Well, the reason Christ's death is so gruesome and violent and horrific on the cross because it helps us to understand how greatly God hates sin. That God hates the things that harm us because He is our Father. He doesn't hate you, but He hates the things that harm us. And you have to simply paint that correctly. And if you want to know how badly God hates the things that harm us, look at the cross. Look at the cross. That's symmetry. But what about clarity? One thing, if you're in Christ, and I want you to hear this this morning, if, you in, if you're in Christ, you are fully and completely forgiven. Did you hear that today? You are fully and completely, there's no caveats, there's no asterisks, there's no what ifs, all sin absorbed by the cross. There is no sin imaginable in this world or this universe that the cross cannot cover. You're not the caveat. You're not the one that says, oh, this is the exception, and God cannot forgive that. Listen, we don't look at mass murderers and think, boy, they would make a great missionary, wouldn't they? We don't ever do that. We think, give them death because that's what they deserve. Only God looks at mass murderers like Saul of Tarshish and says he would make a great missionary. Because there is no sin too great that God does not cover. Community, can I tell you? Church was meant to belong to. 
that we're his people through reconciliation. That church is not just somewhere where information is disseminated to you and it's your ecclesiastical experience for the week where you kind of get to know some facts about God. But this is about community. Church is meant to belong to. And counsel. I thought about that a lot this week, about counsel and how this relates to this phrase in the creed. And I think a lot of us struggle with this area of forgiveness in our life because we know in our realm of humanity, free love, you know, it just really doesn't exist. It was a thing or a term that sort of evolved from the 70s, but it really never existed. It was a, it was a thought, an idea but yet it really does. And we struggle with that because we work so hard in our life for everybody's acceptance and respect. I mean, you do. When you came in this morning and someone said, how are you? You said, I'm great. Why? You don't really want to unload on them because you want their acceptance and respect. We always want to put our first foot forward. Our best foot forward. Until we realize and we come face to face with this story this morning, this narrative of Jesus. And so what God is saying to us before we go to his table is this. God is saying, no, no, the love of Christ is free. The blood of Christ was spilled free for you and I this morning. So God says, so that I could love you freely and I could completely forgive your sins totally. And I think that the reason you and I struggle with this as humans is this, that we are, and we've used this term before, that we're navel gazers. You know what that means? That's a, that's a strange term, isn't it? Navel gazer, yeah. That we're navel gazers that are always looking at ourselves, and we can't see all the good that God has for our lives for all the bad that we want to focus on within our own lives. And so God has this amazing this amazing gift that is His love, free for you and I, to be completely forgiven, to be free of doubt, or to be free of shame, and to be free of the guilt of the things that we have done in our lives. And yet, we look navel-gazing and we think, not me, because God can't do that in my life. There is no way. Look at all the things. I, I really stink, you know, when it comes to all this stuff. And, and look at all the things I've done in my life. And so we begin to look at ourselves. Can I tell you this? And I, and I believe that's important. That we're never transformed by an intimate or intent knowledge of how bad we are, of all the things that we have done in life that are wrong. No, we're transformed by beholding the cross of Christ. Not knowing how horrible we are in life. But we're transformed by gazing upon the cross of Christ. There's no sin too great. Nothing that we've done so horrendous that God cannot completely forgive this morning. He suffered 
under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. So two questions as you bow your heads for a moment with me. And we prepare for the Lord's table. Two thoughts. In which ways do you doubt the forgiveness of God in your life this morning? Because you have to be honest about this if that is you. In which ways do you doubt the forgiveness of God in your life? Oh, Mark, you don't understand what I've done. No, no, that is what we call navel-gazing, that you are looking within yourself as somehow a greater understanding of how evil you are will bring transformation in your life. And God says, no, look on me. I am your hope. God says, I am your forgiveness. Complete and fully. Look on me. And I think the second question we have to ask is, in which ways do you live like sin is no big deal in your life? Then maybe you've been somewhat lazy in putting to death sin in your life. And so, as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's table this morning, that those are the questions that you have to ask yourself. So for a moment, in the stillness of this room, before I ask you to stand, would you consider those questions? In which ways have you struggled or doubted with the forgiveness of God in your life? And today, are you, are you not taking your sins seriously in your life? Because this is the moment and the time for you to deal with those questions. So, Father, today we come to you and we believe, Lord, for your guidance in this moment. Lord, that you would speak to us and guide us. Father, as we prepare ourselves spiritually for your table, that we know that Perfection is not required because perfection as humans is not possible. But yet, God, we know that you see us through the perfection of your son, Jesus. And so today we take our eyes off of ourselves. And Lord, we place our eyes upon you. That in you we find forgiveness. In you we find hope. When there seems to be no other hope in life. So Father, forgive us of our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We accept your forgiveness in our life today. Father, we confess today with our mouth, that you are our Lord, our Savior. We believe in our heart that you died for us, buried, rose again. And today we are forgiven. And so today we gaze on the cross 
For in your cross, oh, we find hope and forgiveness. And Father, we thank you. Father, we pray over the cup that represents your blood today. That we realize that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, as you tell us in the book of Hebrews. So today we're washed clean by your blood. Today, Lord, the wafer represents your body, which was broken for us. That was striped for our healing. And so today, Lord, we do this in remembrance of you. And we thank you, Father, for your table and for this moment of reflection upon your forgiveness within our lives. May we leave here free of guilt and free of shame because we are completely forgiven. Thank you, Father. For this we give you thanks in your name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me all over the room? Today, communion is open to everyone that is here. You do not have to be a member of Hope Fellowship. We do biblically require you, and the scripture requires that you know Christ in a personal way. You confess him as the Savior of your life. Then we encourage you to partake of the Lord's table this morning. Take the wafer, you dip it in the cup. Feel free to kneel while they sing, and we worship together. And stay up front. If you need gluten-free wafers, they are here also up front for, for you to partake of that also. But today... Reflect on the forgiveness of God in your life this morning as we partake of the Lord's table together. Amen. Would you come? Come forward.